Momentum, helping men succeed in life. Hi, it's Des here, and welcome to Momentum. Today in the show, we're speaking to Kevin Young about his life's journey, his ups and downs, and how his faith has brought him out of the dark times. This episode is the first of a series with Kevin, and today we focus on the first part of his life, his upbringing, and his relationship with his dad, who was suffering the effects of his service in World War II. We started out by discussing what life was like as a child growing up in Sydney. I think I'll start where my dad and mum, uh, we were living in Regent's Park in Sydney, New South Wales, and early in life, uh, my dad passed away when he was 42. Uh, so I was 11 at the time. But prior to that, it was a little bit of a rocky road because Dad was a really nice guy and uh, life was good, but he ended up going into the war in the 1940s. Wow. And he was a, I think they call him a sapper, which oh, is right. the modern-day mine guy who finds the IUDs on the road and wow. all that. So he actually hated the job. He was only in there for a couple of years and uh, so that was a difficult time for him. Yeah. And so he went in as a non-smoker, non-drinker, came out and the back in those days they didn't debrief anybody, they didn't have a lot of support. So it was up to you when you left the army to sort your own world out. And uh, for our family, I've, I've got uh, five in our family, so four boys and one girl. I'm the second youngest. And uh, at that time I was very young when Dad uh, went in. Actually, I wasn't born at that time. <laughs> uh, it was a little bit later uh, I was born in 54 and he went in, in the war around the 1944-46 mark. Yeah. So when he came out, he ended up as a um, managing director of an asbestos company. Wow. Yeah, wow. My, my uncle was a boilermaker and in those days, in my young days, uh, even though I was a few years later, I worked with my uncle. Yeah. And uh, anyone who knows anything about asbestos, <laughs> that's not a good scene no matter what you talk about. <laughs> exactly. And uh, he, they used to do lagging around all the pipes and I used to work with him installing boilers or repairing them. So you never know what damage uh, 20 of us, but my uncle died of asbestosis many, many years later. A lovely man and a, very much a family man and, and so that, that was early days and my, my mum, Irene, and my dad, Reg, uh, you know, because he ended up as a managing director, he used to entertain a lot. So alcohol became uh, a during the day, during the night thing and a habit. And uh, that caused family problems. So he ended up gambling a fair bit. And I still remember, I love my dad very much, still got fond memories of him today. Although when he'd come home, it wasn't uncommon that he'd come in on a late Friday and he'd have flowers that he must have bought at 12 o'clock and he'd come in at 6 o'clock <laughs> and they looked like they, were, like they were from the week before, you know. So uh, by the time he brought them home, they were pretty useless. They were all looking dead looking. At and least the thought is good. Uh, right? uh, listen, <laughs> he was, uh, I suppose, what you'd call a happy alcoholic, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, mum trying to raise the kids uh, had a real difficult time because the money would get spent on gambling and if you had a good day, we'd all have a great weekend. If not, mum would be one wondering how she was going to provide for the family. So yeah. it's a lot of turmoil in my early life. And I don't remember actually a lot of it. I have to ask my sister. It's a little bit unusual because I think I blacked out. Ah. Uh, so I'm not sure if that's deliberate or not, but I, I've tried to remember. But I've gone back to my sister talking about those days. And I don't think there was ever any real violence. There's a little bit of pushing yeah. Uh, the police came to my house a few times <laughs> and eventually uh, all the kids and mum, we went to my uncle's place for 
seven months and lived away from Dad oh. and then eventually uh, moved back in. Uh, but not long after, you know, when by the time I was 11 years of age, uh, all of a sudden one day we just got a phone call. Uh, Dad had gone to the hospital just down the road from us in Regent's Park and uh, within three days he died. Wow. He had cirrhosis of the liver from the alcohol. Wow. He was only 42 years of age and obviously I was 11. I had a younger brother and uh, two older brothers and a sister. So that was a dramatic time for us. So how did you react to losing your uh, father that way? It's a very strange thing. I've gone back because I'm interested in, in my past, like a lot of people do as we're getting yeah. on in a few years. It was dramatic what happened. It affected my sister more than anybody uh, because she was at work and she got a phone call um, yeah. from someone saying, um, of course, my other brother worked at a, a bank and uh, he had left and gone home and heard about Dad passing. She rang up the bank and they said, Les not here, his father's died, not realising that Cheryl was a sister. That's how she found out. So it was a very turmoil time and I'm not sure how long after. It would have been certainly within uh, months or a year or so I started off in the alcohol side myself. Do you think that was a direct result of what had happened, the turmoil? And this? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. I, I don't think I was coping with that and I think a lot of people, that's the crutches we have, whether it's drugs or alcohol and... And that's where I ended up from that point on. Really, alcohol was a fairly big part of my life. I still remember. I used to think it was overproof rum, but apparently it was uh, Johnny Walker scotch, oh, right. the, the little flask. Oh, right. And I was only 12, but I, I got into wow. that world, you know. Yeah. I hated it, but but it uh, somehow numbed some of my pain, world. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me, um, there was no Christian influence in your world at that point in time? Oh, no, actually uh, the opposite. My dad... Uh, we went to Lickimbrella Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Uh, my sister at that stage was a scripture teacher. Oh, right. And I still remember, of course, they had the big, long wooden seats <laughs> and they had the hymn uh, chart up on the left-hand oh, yeah. side of where they preached and they'd have the numbers referring to what hymn was on. Yeah. I had actually fond memories because, uh, you know, I, a lot of people there, there was a genuine belief in God, even though it was fairly regimented. Yeah. Uh, there were some good people there and I had a good experience in, in the church there. Yeah, I mean, that's good that you had, even though it was a more formal yeah. church setting, the fact that you have fond memories of it is really yeah. good. There's so many people in the world today and they, they talk about church and, and it's not a pleasant experience. And, and uh, it's good that you managed to have that good experience in your childhood. Well, yeah. It's sort of strange because my dad actually at one stage was an elder there, oh, even really? though I, yeah, before yeah. he died of what yeah. he did. So uh, there was certainly a sincere belief in God, and I think I certainly had that, um, even though if I went, you know, another seven or eight, nine years, or not even that, by the time I was 14 or 15, uh, I was in the drug scene, and by the time I was 16, 17, I was a dealer. And wow. even though we've got a big gap between there with a lot more stuff that happened, uh, it, it might sound really ridiculous, because it is, but uh, I thought I was a very Christian dealer. <laughs> <laughs> How would you define that? Oh, well, you know, if I gave you an ounce, which back in my day was 300 bucks an ounce, yeah. I'd always give you an ounce and I'd, I'd always shout you a joint up front oh, and, right. and I'd always give you one extra at the end. <laughs> so I thought I was very, very good at <laughs> customer service back in those yeah. days. Oh, that are marketing, <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> That's really interesting. Kev, talk to me about how you got into that space because here you are, 11 year old, yeah. your father passed away. Uh, terrific, horrific situation, uh, the sense of loss, the sense of 
identity not having one maybe yep. because a lot of kids have their identity in their in their father for example especially young boys and so uh, talk to me how that how that journey went for you it's a strange thing because uh, even though there was a lot of turmoil and much of what uh, I didn't really remember very well uh, I still remember my dad and I loved him very very much and even though he might come home drunk with flowers, there was something always funny about that for me. Yeah. I saw his heart and, if anything, it's a strange thing, but Mum would badger him uh, because, you know, she'd have all the load of carrying the weight of providing for the family by going shopping and he spent all the money. So she was extremely upset and she really didn't handle it, I don't think, very well at all when I look back I think she was so upset she would just badger him and then that would initiate the conflicts that would exist. And she never found a constructive way of dealing with that. I understand that, but it's funny because mum didn't have the alcohol problem, but I felt more that mum had the problem than dad. Yeah. In my mind as a young kid. Well, he probably drained out the, you know, <laughs> the, the trauma just with the yeah. alcohol. So. Well, yeah, he, like I say, he was a happy happy drunk yeah. sort of thing. And uh, so I started off down that road, which was really pretty mixed up yeah. pretty early on. And by the time I'd hit probably late 13s, maybe 14, I got off at my first joint and uh, so I smoked. For people who don't know what a joint is, it's marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I went through three levels, you know, over the next uh, six to seven years. Yeah. So I was in the drug scene there and if you like, it's a strange way of uh, saying it, but matured from smoking grass into hash and, and then uh, golden mushrooms and, uh. and then I went into LSD and uh, eventually – a couple of my friends started shooting heroin and I turned up, they were my close mates that I used to surf with and I was surfing all through this time and I was really, even though I was at school, I'd rack off and, and uh, off to the beach we'd go and have a few joints. Sure. Yeah. So here you were going up, going through this drug scene. How did that impact you? Did it change your life? Did it, did, did yeah. it give you a sense of identity even? I think I did because I identified with my crowd, my yeah. tribe, yeah. and my tribe were good good mates, uh, good friends at school, and we travelled on that journey of starting off in drugs together. And uh, I was in the alcohol scene quite a long time, even all the way through that. So I still remember I used to get into uh, pool. I was a reasonably good pool player. And I'd, I remember putting 300 bucks on the side of the pool table, and I was a cigarette smoker, so... You know, on the weekends we'd be at Brightonly Sands Pub, all right. the dancers and the girls, and I remember I'd smoke three packets of Marlboro back in those days. Uh, but during the week I'd smoke one packet, you yeah. know, per day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so around that time I put 300 bucks on the table and better than anyone, and you'd put your arm on the table and someone else would put their arm and 300 bucks down. You'd take a cigarette and put it alight between your arm and his so it's burning on your skin. And the person who takes the arm away loses and the other guy gets his money plus the other 300 bucks. Wow. And so I've got about a dozen cigarette burn marks up my arm. Oh and I always God. used to win, though. <laughs> Not much of a bright boy, but, oh but I did cash in on the deal. <laughs> Across Australia, you're listening to Momentum. It's Des here. And our guest today is Kevin Young. We continue Kevin's story as he gets deeper into a lifestyle fueled by drugs and alcohol. By the time I hit about 18, I overdosed. I was at a party and I'd, I was already stoned and I'd been smoking gross grass and hash most of the day. And uh, what happened was 
a friend of mine gave me a cap of uh, cocaine and you took the cap apart, it's a powder, and I put it on the edge of my hand, there's a little hollow there that I used to do this, and snorted it up my nose. And for those who don't understand drugs, when you snort things compared to injecting, it just takes longer for the same effect. That's why people inject, because yeah. you get instant hit. And so I'd done that, but I had eight times the amount of a normal person, particularly because this is the first time I'd ever used. And within about half an hour I'd overdosed, and uh, there's no – I'll avoid some parts that are not too uh, pretty, but I laid down and overdosed and went to sleep on the ground. I was unconscious, and my friends realised what was going on, and they started to wake me up. I was violently sick, and the scene became quite um, – not very pretty, <laughs> let me say, because what goes up comes down and yeah. move on from that one, you know. <laughs> and so they walked me around for 24 hours and luckily um, uh, they got me through that time because I talked to a doctor late and they said, Kev, you are really just a flip of a coin away from dying on that night. So I backed off on the drug scene. I was looking for an answer but just couldn't find one. Yeah. And then uh, things sort of went through a shift and I had a really good friend of mine I'd been in kindergarten with all my life. His name's Terry Baldwin. And we lived in the same area. He was totally different to me. He was not a drug guy. He wasn't a cigarette smoker, uh, alcohol. He was a health fanatic, if anything. And around that time, he was part of a gymnasium up the road for me, uh, run by two great uh, men, Johnny Walker and his wife Helen, and another guy called George Chappell. It was the first private-owned gym in Australia. Terry was part of that and he was a vegetarian and he saw me in the drug scene and he yeah. paid for me, shouted me to go to this gym. He wanted to become a fruitarian and he needed to live in the tropics. Ah. So he travelled for a year away and did all those things and returned a year later. When he did, I'd, I'd been at the gym for about three weeks, gave it away. <laughs> and uh, so when he came back, I was interested to see what he had done. And he ended up in Cairns, got a job managing car yard at about 26 years of age. He had about 10 people our age, you know, like 50, 60, 70 probably, yeah. <laughs> working for him. He was an executive young guy and he, he was living at Tropical Ellis Beach. He met a woman who was about 12, 14 years older. She was in her middle, later 30s, a very beautiful woman, and he was a young 20-year-old. So he had a relationship, was living with her. And so after he said all these things, I felt like I was on the top of a mountain ready to go. And then he paused and his voice changed and he said, Kev, you know, something was like heaven, or like winning the gold medal. And I said, yeah, yeah, it sounds amazing. And he said, you know what? He said, after six weeks I came home to my flat on the beach at Ellis Beach, cans, mangoes and all that sort of stuff. And the girlfriend wasn't home and I walked in and I'm getting real excited. I think he's going to tell me something else really good. And he said, I came in knelt down next to my bed and bawled my eyes out. And I sat there stunned for a minute thinking, hold on a minute, the story's not supposed to go this way because I'm going there tomorrow (laughs) at this age. And he said, I found myself empty like I was before I got all this. It only lasted that period of time. He'd booked in a trip on a catamaran to go through Indonesia at that stage and was going to go on that trip to find the answers again. This boat had ended up in a very bad situation. I'm not sure if it sunk, but he was lucky he didn't go on that voyage. And he just said, Kev, I was empty. And so eventually what happened was a friend who was a born-again Christian came up from Sydney and he got on the back of the motorbike and he was riding with him 
and it actually wasn't the guy on the motorbike. He was just sitting on the motorbike thinking about when he used to go to the gym at Regent's Park with this Johnny Walker guy who was like a dad to him and how he used to tell him about Jesus and how he died for him and, and how he can be born again and become a new person and everything could change. And it never meant anything to him back then. Yeah. But on the back of this motorbike and by himself, even though the other guy's on the front of the bike, no one talking to him, he had a revelation of God's grace. Wow. And all of a sudden it became real to him and on the back of the bike he bawled his eyes out and asked Jesus to come into his life. Amazing. And the guy on the front of the bike could feel what was going on because yeah. God's presence was all over both of them and he pulled over and he said, what's going on, Terry? He said, I've just given my life to Jesus, man. <laughs> <laughs> now he was shocked because he obviously was praying for him but he sure. just he wasn't part of that process. Obviously he was praying for him so in yeah. that sense he was. Yeah. And when he told me that, I really didn't understand, I don't think, the terminology, what it was to be born again. Yeah. I still remember, I thought it's like telling someone about ice cream who's never had ice cream. Yeah, that's I mean, right. That's a, until you taste it, you know. Yeah. And so for me, I looked at him and his sincerity and the presence of God that was over us at that time, I just felt, man, what you've got, I want. I don't really know what it is and I don't want, know what it is to get born again. And he said, Kev... I want to do something. I want you to come with me because we live near this gymnasium with Johnny Walker. And really he wanted to honour John. He could have led me to the Lord then and there for yeah. sure. But we went up to the gym and said, John, hey, come over here. And he told him what was happening in my heart. And John sat down with me. And he, I remember he told me two scriptures and the classic one, John 3.16. Of course. You know, for God so loved the world mm. that he gave his only son. It broke my heart. Yeah. So God's grace and his, the revelation of what Jesus had done for me hit me like a Mack truck at that time and I just bore my eyes out and I thought, God, I don't know how you could ever save me or why you'd even be worried about me because I was really a rat bag of a kid uh, in so many ways, morally, drugs, on so many levels, ripping off. My mum's a single pensioner and I'd steal money out of a purse to go and mm. buy my drugs, all those sort of things. Oh, mm. I really was a rat bag. And, um, but God loves everybody, loved me, and um, I prayed with Johnny, gave my heart to the Lord. And in all honesty, uh, I felt like a, a brand new person, not, not even really a brand new person, I felt like a baby, as if you've got a fresh baby that's just been washed up, put in the clean clothes, put in a cot. I was just happy. And I, I left them a couple of hours later and I was living in the backyard of my home in this old plywood caravan with 100 grand's worth of hash, Buddha sticks, you know, grass, LSD, opium, all those sort of things. And I was smoking 200 bucks worth a day and I couldn't, I couldn't not have drugs. Within two hours I'd be in withdrawals. And as soon as Jesus came into my life, I didn't want him anymore. Thanks for listening to Momentum and our special guest has been Kevin Young. We'll continue Kevin's story in the next few weeks on our show and don't forget to visit the Momentum website to listen to previous episodes and to find a whole stack of helpful resources. That's MomentumAustralia.org.